Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. It's... Uh, the first or the second part of October, I should say, and once again we find ourselves recording in the middle of a tournament because the Asian swing is even weirder and more post-apocalyptic than we ever thought it could be. Um, I'm going to make an apology, first of all, before I introduce, well, Calvin Betton, I, I need to make no apology for him, he makes apologies for himself, well actually he doesn't at all, uh, but he is here as usual. Uh, I make an apology for George Belshaw and his loud mouse, uh, <laughs> which when I was listening back to the recording last week... I was um, bemoaning George's brand new government-sponsored mouse, which I can see he is now putting away. Um, but, but George, have you got alternative pointing device, or are you just without ability to click on things now? So I've got my little trackpad on my right, laptop okay. anyway. But I was Good. trying to be I, I, trying to stave off kind of arthritis of an actual <laughs> mouse. So the things I do for you guys, like if you get an RSI because you're trackpad, George, you just sue us. That's fine, not a problem. We're George absolutely the first, swimming in cash. George will be the first person ever to get arthritis from doing a podcast. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, uh, what I should also do is read out a five star review because uh, one's just popped into my inbox from Unlucky Punter. Uh, who says, new favourite tennis pod, stumbled on this podcast a couple of weeks ago and got listening. Really impressed so far, and now look forward to this each week. More than the other award-winning tennis podcasts. Keep up the good work, guys. Uh, well, th- there are many tennis podcasts out there, and we thank you for listening to this one. We don't win awards, but we we win our own awards, which is maybe even sadder. Um, before we get into tennis, and there's lots to talk about, we'll talk about Yannick Sinner. Um, and a really, actually a really great newsletter I read by Hugh Clark this week, and we'll talk a little bit of tennis tactics in there. Um, we'll talk Iga Shontek and Coco Goff, both the matches they have been playing and the ones that they're not going to be playing. Uh, we'll have a look at Shanghai, because obviously we're in the middle of that, because that's how the tennis calendar works now. Uh, Stefano Sitsipas is back with his daddy. Uh, Diego Schwartzman's back being a daddy, and uh, we're still arguing about the Billie Jean King Cup. But before any of that, Calvin, you kind of alluded to something um, off air just before we we started today, which I thought was really interesting. Um, You obviously coach two players at the moment, one of whom is Luke Johnson, who won yet another title yesterday, I believe, over in the States. But you're saying that actually he's he's had to really mould his schedule around Brexit. Yeah. um, So Luke was in pretty good form before he went to the States and he would have preferred to stay in Europe and play in the 100 and 125 uh, challenges. Um, but because of Brexit rules, as a British person, he's only allowed to spend, I don't know the exact amount, but he's only allowed to spend a certain amount of days. I think it's a certain amount of days every 90 or every every year hmm. or every rolling 6365 or rolling something. But basically, his, he'd used up his days that in mainland Europe that he was allowed to spend. So he had to play somewhere else for a three or four week period. So mm. he had to go to the States and play. And to be honest, there's not there's there's no difference in the standard of tournaments in the standard of pairs, but there's less points in the seventy fives. Um 
And so while he's been in, him and his partner Skander Mansouri have been in this great form, they've won three in a row, um, they've only been picking up the 75 points minus what they got last year um, at the same week. And so not been really flying up the rankings like you'd imagine, um, basically because of Brexit. That he, um, he's had to plan his schedule around that. And I think this is, he's got one more coming up this week uh, in the States and then he's, he's not playing for a week and then his, his days of of um, they've reset by then. They can mm. go play some more in Europe by then. But Calvin, um, because it's important we have balance on issues like this, um, does he feel he's taken back control? Uh, he's <laughs> well. I mean, his serve has more sovereignty. So and that's <laughs> that's what. Um, and and when he flew to America, I think he flew with a blue passport. So you know, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> um, less points, less likely to get into Australian Open, even though he keeps winning. But sovereignty. So, mm. um, I, I, we should talk. We probably don't talk about Luke enough, given that he's he's won three in a row and is playing so well. But um, he's now ranked just outside the top hundred. So, what what's your kind of plan for the next couple of months? You mentioned the Australian Open. There is that going to come too soon? Maybe. Uh, I don't know because you you know it just depends if you know at this stage last year. Henry and Jules were probably, I don't know if they were around about the same ranking as Luke is now. Um, mm, maybe, yeah. Or, you know, it would have been around the same. Um, and so, and then they ended up getting in. I think the problem is with Luke and Skoskander, his partner is ranked about 30 places below Luke. So it's unlikely they get in together because I don't think Skander's going to make 70. It might just come a bit too early for him. Mm. Uh, but I think they'll keep on playing together in the, in the long term. Um, so it might be a case that I think if Luke, basically what you need is you need a combined, to guarantee getting in the slams, or guarantee-ish, you need a combined ranking of 140. So if he was to enter now, we'd have to get a singles or a doubles player ranked in the top 30. So, okay. you know, that, that's tough. Ten, top 30 singles players tend not to play a whole lot of doubles uh, in the slams. Um, but I think what, you know, what we'd be aiming for is to try and get up to into towards 100 and then you're basically looking at, you know, top top forty, top fifty, mm. um, and then maybe try and get a singles guy who, who fancies playing with a decent doubles player. Um, but yeah, absolutely not giving up hope on it. Um, you know, it's one of those things that it's just going to keep winning. But it's, mm. it's you know, it's, it's tough to keep winning, especially because Skandri's partner is he's playing singles. So the last two weeks he's won the doubles, uh, and then the next day he's had to go and play singles. So he's I don't think he's had a day off in about four weeks now. <laughs> um, and then he's, I know he's played singles again today. I think he had yesterday off, sorry. Uh, but again, they were traveling. So, um, mm. and uh, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see, hopefully. But I think, you know, I think, you know, looking at the long term, I'd certainly expect him to be playing three of the slams next year at least. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. And and since we're on Calvin's stable, I mean, for, for people who've maybe not been following Henry Patton's progress since obviously disappointment of getting. Um, injured in the summer and then the US Open, which obviously we talked about. He's he's had a couple of new partners over the last couple of weeks. He's out in Spain at the moment, is he? Yeah, um he played with uh, he played one week with Luke when Luke Luke switched side and played on the ad and played in Saint Tropez, which was a bit it's a bit of a, a bit of a rough week that just because the rain was so bad and like there was no practice, couldn't get a practice in and then they they drew the second seeds, uh Arniedo and Weisborn were a good pair and lost in a close one to them, 10 mm. Um And then he played with J.P. Smith, an Australian guy, 
um, and they lost in the final in France two weeks ago in a very close match in the final. I think it was two yeah. tie breaks um, against two very big serving German lads, Franzen and Javens. Um, and then he wasn't actually going to play uh, last week, but there was nobody around to practice with, basically, at home. So yeah. he said he just was going to go and play with Charlie Broom, who's one of his, his best mates in tennis. Um, so they just they just had a week and um, they won a match and then they lost to Maxim Cressy and Otto Vertinen, who are very, very big hitting players. I was going to say, I can't match. think of a bigger serving pair of singles players there, in fairness. Yeah, Otto Vertinen can hit a tennis ball um, <laughs> like, on return as well. It's not just serve. He's a oh, very, really? very clean ball striker. And famously... Um, what always I always remember about Otto Vertinen is I saw him break a Wilson Blade tennis racket across his knee once, um, which is some going because if anyone <laughs> who's ever played with a Wilson Blade knows it is solid graphite, and he snapped it straight over his knee. Um, <laughs> so he has a very very strong knee. Yeah, um, clearly, clearly. But yeah, and uh, then this week um, he's he's starting a new partnership. This week he's going to play with Francisco Cabral um, at least until the end of the year, and hopefully um, going forward. Uh, for people who don't know Francisco Cabral, um, which in fairness includes me until about a week ago, what 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 does he bring to the table? I mean, he's obviously he's a top fifty doubles player, isn't he? Yeah, he he played he played with Jamie Murray actually last year for for a few tournaments. Um, mm. Very good player, um, had a lot of success. Uh, again, not really. He, he played a lot with his his good friend Nuno Borges, um, who's a single singles guy, and they had a lot of success last year, but. As always, Nuno's doing well singles, and the singles guys don't want to commit to doubles, and they don't want to practice doubles, which is a big thing. Mm. So um, he's been playing with a few different partners this year, but mainly Rafael Matos. Um, but he had a chat with Henry, and they wanted to give it a go together. They knew each other. They played each other against a few times. So, um, yeah, so they're going to have a go. And he's, he's a big guy, um, almost as, as tall as Henry. Uh, big serve. Solid return, solid at the net. Yeah, looking forward to seeing where it goes. Exciting stuff. Yeah, you say almost as tall as Henry. I have to say the the first time I watched Henry play, I think it was last year, maybe at Nottingham, and he is a tall guy, but he's also just a big guy. Like yeah. in in he his feet, his thighs, his his sort of limbs, everything is like in proportion. If you like, he's yeah. a, an incredible athlete with um. And uh, we can, can we say big touch for a, good touch for a big lad. <laughs> he's got a great touch. That's his main. <laughs> <laughs> One of his main strengths, really, but yeah, um, yeah, excellent, exciting stuff. Right, well, let's um, let's move on to the Far East, away from from America, from Europe, from Brexit, and to China, where, of course, famously, there's no politics involved. Uh, Yannick Sinner won a title in Beijing. Uh, he beat Daniil Medvedev and Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, George's prediction about him being El Flopitano starting to age like old milk, I suspect, George. Uh, I'm sure you will have a defence coming, and uh, I will. Once I have uh, kind of introduced this section with an email from Marianne, you can always email us, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. She says, I've loved Sinner since I saw him in his first next-gen tournament. Uh, the last few years, my enthusiasm has waned a tad, as I think one of you may have said also. Uh, he's got the skill, but does he have the it factor? Alcaraz, Runa, and Shelton have bravado, balls, and belief. Will Sinner win a slam? Can nice guys finish first? I'm encouraged by his win in Beijing. What do you think? Um, George, he needs only four wins to set a record for the most match wins for an Italian man in a single season, which is 
I don't know how impressive that is. It's a stat that has too many caveats, but um, he's <laughs> up to world number four and he's into ATP World Tour final. So he's going well and he's making you look like a right idiot. I, I think he's possibly down to only three now uh, since I actually wrote that <laughs> sentence, James. Um, so, I, I mean, my, my defense as ever is that I was talking about the longevity of Sinavi Alcaraz in the sense of I did say I think Alcaraz will improve a lot more than I suspect Sinner will. And I think he's got a higher ceiling. And my worry is that matchup won't age very well. I think we risk seeing the best of it now when they're more closely matched but I think Alcaraz will get so much better I'm not sure we're going to see that from Sinner but I but I thought the email you sent James um and I've completely forgotten the chat Hugh, name Hugh Clark it. if you want to find Hugh him on Substack it's Hugh Clark with an E um I, I thought it was a really interesting piece um both kind of picking out their kind of current dynamic of a rivalry but also kind of making the case about Sinner's incremental um improvements and you know, with with a guy like Darren Cahill on board, it's perhaps not such a surprise to see, you know, Sinner's results have been taking that next step forward at a level it is hard to get there. I think getting to world number four for him is no mean feat, you know, and I, th- I think we'd probably all sit here right now and say comfortably the four guys who are the men's one to four are probably the guys we'd want to be seeing in the, in the semifinals of slams at the minute if we could pick the four we wanted. Um, probably we'd want to be picking the right matchups between them. So maybe Sinner, Alcaraz, and then Medvedev, Djokovic, probably, is the, the two semis you'd want with an Alcaraz-Djokovic final um, in your dream kind of slam. But I, I think he's he's obviously had a really good year. He is improving. I just, I'm still not convinced there's enough of a kind of plan B, C, D with Sinner, whereas I think Alcaraz just has so many more different routes to victory. And as Hugh said, I think this matchup's a bit odd because Alcaraz is sort of being sucked into Sinner's game right now. I think as he grows as a player, perhaps gets tactically smarter as well as kind of shot brilliant. Um, I I suspect Alcaraz will pull away, but happy to be wrong. It's a prediction I'm not invested in from a a heart perspective. It's just a head one, I think. I think this tactical matchup, Calvin, is going to be one that we talk about a lot over over the next 10 years, um, I think, as George has alluded to there. Um, we often talked about Sinner being that quite one-dimensional. Alcaraz isn't, but it, it did seem, and I, I kind of, I'm kind of lifting from Hugh's newsletter here because it was really good and it kind of spoke to a lot of things I thought about the match, that it almost looked like Alcaraz got sucked into trying to dictate when Sinner was trying to dictate, you know, almost like, well, I've managed to get to this big forehand you've hit. I'm going to hit a bigger one back. Whereas I would say, Calvin, that Alcaraz's strength is when you're hitting the ball well, he can mix it up and provide something different and move you around or bring you forward. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I disagree somewhat with George there. I, I think that although I think Alcaraz will be a better player, for sure. I think he's a, he's a better player now and I think he will continue to be. I think it will always, I think Sinner will always cause him problems. Just for for two reasons. One, that mentally, if if you beat somebody regularly early on in your career, it's rare that and 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 that player's a good player and of a similar age. It's rare that that you ever sort of just start beating them all the time. Then, um, so I think that. But also, I just think tactically, it's it's a tough matchup for Alcaraz because Sinner hits the ball really flat and really hard. 
And in order to get a hit on it, like Alcaraz likes to likes to dominate the rallies, he needs a ball with shape in order to do that, and then he can hit it back with more shape and more power to hit a heavy ball. It's tough to hit a heavy ball like Alcaraz likes, especially on his forehand, off a flat, hard, deep ball that is skidding through at you. So I think that it will always be one that he struggles with just because he basically sinner takes away the way that he wants to play. So yeah, he's got more in his game and he's more adaptable than Sinner and and, and Alcaraz will be able to find solutions. I think it will always end up being a sort of 50-50 one. Maybe even that Alcaraz might edge it overall, but I think it will always be close because, just because Sinner can take away Alcaraz's plan A. And if you can ever take anyone's plan A away, then you've, you've already got them in a bit of trouble. Whereas I don't think that Alcaraz can take Sinner's plan A away. He's, he's, strangely, he's one of the ones who can. Um, but, yeah, I I think it's... And yeah, like you say, James, I think he would... Ideally, that's what he'd do, but it's not what, it's not what Alcaraz tends to do. And it's tough to do that. If somebody's hitting the ball flat and hard all the time, it's tough to just change it round and throw in a little bit more because that's not the way he, he has those little flourishes, but also at the same time, he's not Dan Evans. Uh, he's not going to be chipping slices away and that kind of thing against Sinner because I think if he did that, I don't think he'd beat Sinner either because you've taken away his, the best part of his game. If Alcaraz is struggling so much to deal with kind of Sinner's plan A, Calvin, what is it that other players are doing that means Yannick Sinner's not beating them on a, a regular basis? Why, why is Sinner struggle so much against Djokovic, for example? What, what What's kind of the big well, difference? Jo- Djokovic there? kind of like, if you look at his swing speeds, he's kind of like uses a bit more, like, it, it's less dependent on... Whatever, Alcaraz is a fantastic player and he's got plenty to his game, but his plan A is dependent on getting behind the ball and ripping huge forehands that have heavy topspin and come with pace. That's not what Djokovic's plan A is. Djokovic's plan A is he's going to make a lot of balls, he's going to, he's going to defend well, he's going to put you in strange positions that you don't really ideally want to be in, and he's just going to play the match very well. Whereas he's taking away... Sinner doesn't take away Djokovic's plan A at all, or or even he doesn't take away how he wants to hit the ball because Djokovic is used to playing against that that kind of thing whereas Alcaraz, I think just if you look at the shot mechanics of what he wants to do, you can't generate it's it's easier to generate heavy, pacey topspin off a ball that's coming at you that's with, with some sort of heavy, pacey topspin and, you know, you watched him today be, you know Twice now in the last few weeks, he's struggled against Dan Evans. He's beat him a couple of times. And the reason for that is that he's not getting that ball off Dan Evans either. But he's beat him. You know, this is not... I'm not saying for a minute that this is a weakness in his game. I'm saying that it, it, it makes him work harder if he can't do what he wants to do. But when he plays Djokovic, for example, Djokovic is hitting... He does hit a, a, a shaped, heavy-ish ball. And so he can tee off on it. He can't do that against Sinner on his forearm. I've got a bit of a theory that's been brewing in my head for a while. And I suspect you're both going to say it's total nonsense because, uh, <laughs> you know, you know a lot more about tennis than I do. But I was watching Arsenal Man City on Sunday and I largely found it a pretty boring game. 
because it was two, admittedly, two really great managers and two great footballing minds in Pep Guardiola and Mikel Arteta, but two from the very same school and two who knew each other almost a bit too well and two who'd kind of coached their team to within an inch of their life to a certain way of playing. And it, it largely cancelled each other out until, um, you know, Gabriel Martinelli like added something different and Arsenal got a bit lucky late on, I would argue. Anyway, with the, the kind of... Um, the the allowance, the permission given to on-court coaching, with the fact that you've got Yannick Sinner with Darren Cahill in his box and give a decent amount of advice during the match anyway, even when it wasn't legal, is there an element here of we're seeing less of a rivalry on the court between two people trying to outthink each other? And actually it's a, it's a rivalry of a player and a player and a coach and a coach. Uh, and that it's kind of happening a bit more the way people said it might on court that it is coaches almost marionetting matches a little bit more. Um, well, I mean, without wishing to go to football unfiltered, I'll first raise the question <laughs> about if Mikel Arteta is a great football mind. Being, being, I was that, thinking that. being that he has precisely the same amount of league titles as I do under his, um, <laughs> under his management. Um, now, on to the actual question. Um, he's a good manager. He's all right. Um, he's done a good. He's done a good job. He's built job. a decent team in a good club job. that has like a perennial problem with getting over yeah, the line, yeah. and, and they almost did. Spent more money than any club in Europe over the last three years. But, <laughs> yeah, done a good job. Um, I, I, I don't think so, James, um, because what you said. Because I just don't think that for all you know, and I've, I've discussed this point again. Like the, the the impact of a coach on the tennis court. We're talking about if I'm watching a tennis match and. I, and Without sounding like a bell, I think I'm a pretty good tennis coach. And I think anybody's like this. I think if if I can have a 5 or 6 or 7% impact on a match, I've done a decent job there in the day from an on-court coaching once the match starts. And that's unlikely. You're maybe looking at percentages. Whereas a football manager can have a huge impact during the match just because you can change players, you can change position. You can't give... You can't suddenly give Yannick Sinner a great slice backhand in the middle of the match. <laughs> Whereas if you see that damage has been done on a football pitch, you can change formation. And then if that doesn't work, you can change players. Um, so I, I, this is one of the things that cracks me up when people go on about how, how bad it is that we're now allowing tennis coaching. And it does, this doesn't happen. This is just absolute nonsense. You might get, I think it's good for the, the, the fans that they can watch it and you might get a little bit of change in it. but. And as well, it's not like, and this is the same for any any sport, it's the same for football. It's not like you just tell a player what to do and they just implement it. Like that's that's not how it works. That's that's definitely not how it works. So I I, I don't think so. It's interesting to see, but having said that as well, like what does Cahill actually tell Sinner to do different? Like it's just the same stuff. Twats <laughs> the ball really hard. Like that's it. George, I don't know if you're still with us, but if, on my screen, you're frozen with your finger up in the air. So yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see what you've got to say, if indeed you do have anything to say, but no, I, no, I cannot see, I, or, I, am or I can here. see vaguely you, but I, I certainly can't can you hear you not me? moving. Um, Is George so... done this podcast with Carrier Pigeon? Or it's, like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, incredibly, George lives in North London, which I think has some of the best internet coverage of anywhere in Europe, and now completely black screen, so yeah, it's fascinating stuff as always from Belshaw. Maybe we're better off without him. Um, well, it's worth talking a bit about the final as well. 
um, because he, he beat Daniil Medvedev, which I think is also a significant result because he had never beaten him before. They played six times as professionals, uh, including in two other finals, um, all on hard court as well, albeit mostly indoors, which I think probably is a bit of a tougher matchup for Sinner. Calvin, just from a mental perspective, especially a guy like Sinner, who who has had some big wobbles, let's face it, you know, match points at the US Open against Alcaraz last year, for example, and various other matches where he's been ahead and had a chance and frankly choked. How big is it to kind of um, just just earn that, that first victory against a player, and especially against Medvedev, who... You know, outdoor hardcore in China, pretty tough opponent. I think it's quite a significant one, actually, because particularly because it's not just Medvedev's a tough player to, to a tough hurdle to get over if you've not beaten him. Just the way because because he has such a such a, a unique way of playing hmm. that in that he's tall, lanky, doesn't hit the ball particularly hard, makes a lot of balls, hits to a length, serves big and flat, but not particularly accurately. It, it's it's more of a unique style than anyone else. Well, I've said before this. There's never been a tennis player who plays like um, Daniel Medvedev at that, that, the highest level of the game. Mm. Um, so I think it's both the name thing of knowing that you've beaten the third best tennis player in the world, probably rankings. I know rankings change a lot, but it's more that, and also convincing yourself, convincing yourself that you can play against, you can win against this style of play. Which I think is 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 particularly important mm. for for Sinner there, but also, you know, he, he's not been great against the the top players in the world in his career, other than Alcaraz, who he has a good record against. Mm. But the other guys, Djokovic, uh, Zverev, um, Medvedev, up until then, he he's, he doesn't have a great record against, does he? Mm. Yeah, and I think that that is just one of those things as a young player, and and we also have to remember, Calvin, like Yannick Sinner is. 22 I think he turned 22 yeah. this year he's still a bit of a baby and and like also I think physically you know we talk a lot about Holger Runa's um, physicality lately because of this back thing that's going around talk about Alcaraz being like a fully developed adult at 18 Yannick Sinner hasn't really been that um like he you look at him and he he's I don't know whether this is unfair or offensive, but he looks noodly. You know, he looks he looks like he's got noodles for arms. I think yeah. Ferrero <laughs> once said it about Alcaraz, but he does. He looks sort of flimsy. And he's a skinny lad. There's yeah. no question about it. He's a skinny lad. He doesn't have remarkably the skinniest legs in men's tennis. And this was a, this astonished me because you don't expect it. Is Berrettini really who has, who has the thinnest legs I've ever seen on a male? Wow, um, of a male athlete. And mm. you don't think that because he's a big guy. Up yeah. top, um, yeah. But uh, but Sinner's not far behind. He's just he's just a skinny guy, and I don't know whether he's one of those guys who just you know some people just can't put on weight. And mm. I think he might always be a bit like that. But um, yeah, I th- it's a weird one with him. I think because of the way he came on the scene, he came through so quickly, and with this this dominant style of play, that we all thought that he was just on a pathway to. You know, to, to to be relentlessly at the top, and he kind of has been, but he kind of hasn't either. Mm. He kind of sits on his own, doesn't he? As you can't, you can't lump him with other players in terms of like, if we say like, I'd say you've got Djokovic and Alcaraz, who are the the top two players in the world. Yeah, and then you've got then that that's at the, you've got that kind of section of fully fit. I'll stress fully fit. You've got like Medvedev. 
Zverev, Sitsipas. Um, I know Medvedev. Runa. Yeah, yeah, Runa. Uh, yeah, I'd say all those. And then you've got the guys then below them who aren't doing as much. And I, I, Rublev, I know they're, they're, Rude, Fritz. Yeah, those, yeah. yeah. Having said that, I'd probably put a lot of those the same. Whereas, like, which one of those would you put Sinner in? Yeah. Like, and would you put him above them or below them? If this is a guy who's like, he has a winning record against Alcaraz, um, but also he's never been. Has he been in the semi of a slam? Yes. Uh, yeah. He made a semi oh, Wimbledon, Wimbledon, didn't he? Wimbledon, this year. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, but, you know, it hasn't been in the final of a slam. You know, mm. so. But you, he's tough to categorise. Like, is he. You could, you could. What I'm trying to get is, you could equally make an argument that Sinner is the fourth best player in the world, and you can make an argument that he's the fourteenth. Yeah, yeah. Um, by by ranking, he is now the the fourth best player in the world, which which maybe yeah. represents, you know, if he goes in, he's number four seed because the slam look the slams are everything these days. Um, we can't get away from that. And if you're the number four seed, it's massively different from being the number five seed. Like your draw is just yeah, yeah. so much easier, um, and it gives you so much more protection in that. Well, the the middle of the tournament, the first week, seeds all basically have the same draw. But you know, third and fourth rounds, that's where you get that extra protection. And all of a sudden, you know, I, if Andre Rublev was number four seed at a Slam, I, I'm sure he would have a better record in quarterfinals than he does. But the reality is that if you're between five and eight you get this guaranteed draw where you're going to face a massive player in the quarterfinals. So I think there is a big, potentially this is a big, uh, as a lot of Spanish managers say, a big moment um, in, in Yannick Sinner's career. Um, George, do, do you feel that way? Are we just, while you were fanning around um, in the 1990s, um, <laughs> we were saying that he's 22 and, you know, he's only really just starting to fill out his body and, you know, he's starting to break into that. Do, do you feel about the same way? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I sort of kind of agree with um, Calvin's reflections, really. Like, it, part of me wants to say he's outright the fourth best player in the world. Part of me wants to say, well, I still don't back him to reach the semi-finals every week, which, you, you know, I, I guess maybe we got too used to this with kind of the big four, if you like, that sort of consistency. And it's sort of skewed my brain by recency bias. But, um, you know, I, I still wouldn't look at many draws that Yannick Sinner's in and feel confident he's definitely going to be getting to the, the quarters or the semis. And that's not because I think of his ability. I, I just think there's too many players that I just don't... I think he can lose to. Whereas I, I don't really think that with Alcaraz. Like, even Medvedev, you know, we know he can have his weird up and downs throughout a year but in a US Open broadly speaking I'm saying there's only four or five players I think can beat Medvedev so it's probably 15 I think would have a pretty reasonable chance of that... beating Sinner I, th I think that what needs to happen now going forward and what's happened with what happened with all the you, you look at all the big four um, and you look at Medvedev and Alcaraz on top of that is that when they win they go on runs of like this type of thing. So this was a good tournament that he's won. What they would do was they would go and win this one as well now in Shanghai. And then they go to Paris and win that or make final in that. And then they'd go to the year-end finals and make the final. And that's 
that's how you do it. That's how those guys all did it when Alcaraz just started winning everything, um, I guess, last year. I mean, he, he slowed down a bit on the clay as it happened, but he was just going through winning everything. Um, and then I remember Djokovic did the same, Murray did the same, whereas Sinner's like, it hasn't happened yet, but like, you know, like Runa looked like he was going to do that, and then he's just fallen off, fallen off the wayside. Um, Medvedev went on that run, was it 2020, where he just won everything on the hard He lost in the final of the US to Nadal, or was it 19? 19, yeah. He lost the final of Nadal, and then he just won everything up until the year-end finals, didn't he? And that's that's how you've got to do it. You can't do it by just... What we don't want to see is him winning... Um, what we don't want to see is, is... We don't want to see him winning, like, you know, this one, and then going out in the quarters of Shanghai. Mm. Um, mm. Or something. Because, you know, quarters are decent, but if you're going to make the breakthrough, otherwise, you're just going to be the guy who wins some 500s. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, sorry, I've been distracted because my dog has just decided that this is the moment that he wants to get involved. Is, it, so, is this um, your first announcement of a dog, James? <laughs> I mean, I suppose so. His name is Buzz. He's a retired greyhound, uh, and he was pretty successful. He's also quite needy. Um, so he he basically, he, he's only in here because he wasn't in here before, so now wants to be in here. And my missus has let him in because he was crying about it. There you go. He's, he's <laughs> taking his place on the sofa, which used to be my favourite spot on the sofa, but now it's his. But anyway, there you go. It's quite quite enough dog chat. Um, people who watch on YouTube will have seen him in the background, and I'm sure you'll see a lot more of him because he's an absolute unit, um, as most sex racing dogs are. Um, I don't know how much more there is to say about Yannick Sinner, um, other than that he has won two matches already, uh, in Shanghai, so any fears of uh, a quarterfinal defeat. But he is now playing Ben Shelton uh, in the last 16 uh, in a match that probably would have taken place by the time you uh, you hear this. So we'll see how that how that evolves. Um, I, I was just going to say one thing. I, I wanted to look up the titles that he's already won. And when I look at titles that people have won, I always think about like the bookends of the year as meaning a bit less. Like if you've got lots of titles you know, around February, March, or like, you know, after the US Open. And a lot of his titles have come in those slots. Like he's won Sofia twice in November. He's won uh, an Australian title up in, in February in the run-up to the Australian Open. Um, he has, of course, now won the Canadian Masters. Like that feels like a really big moment, um, a thousand title there in, in Canada. And that's in the heart of the season, I think, when people are maybe in a bit better shape. but. Um, I think he's got to win more titles in the heart of the year for me. Um, it's great to win Beijing, but I don't know how much credence I'm going to be giving that. Um, we've lost George again, but uh, we'll soldier on. Uh, let's talk a bit about Shanghai. There's a couple of results. Well, there's actually one result I really want to ask you about, Calvin, because his name came up either last week or the week before, which is Roman Safulin. Um, now, it only came up in the context of uh, Andy Murray complaining about not having any data on him. Um, well, it doesn't appear to have made the blind bit of difference because I think he had a lot more data on him this time around and he beat him 3-2 and two in Shanghai. And he then went on to beat Alexander Zverev 3-1. and one. So it maybe wasn't a fluke. Um, he did lose to Ben Shelton in three sets. But I don't know if he's someone you've come across before, Roman Safiulin, Calvin. He's He's been around the block a bit. He's 26 and... You know, he's up into the top 50, I think, for the first time in his career. 
Um, but he's, he's, you know, obviously made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon this year. But other than that, I don't think he's really made great shakes. Yeah, um, I, I actually watched him live at the US Open play doubles because he he was in the match that uh, Henry and Jules lost to Bopana and Ebden. And Bopana and Ebden beat Safulin and, I'm going to say, Golyabev, maybe, okay. um, in the round before. And he was perhaps the worst doubles player I've seen play professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly at a slam. Um, towards the end of the match, I think the second set was relatively close. Maybe the breaker serving at the end or something. And he moved out of the way of two shots. Um, <laughs> I didn't leave them. I didn't duck or anything. Didn't take him by surprise. He just moved and let the ball go over his shoulder. Mm. Um, so that's all I've seen of him live. Um, I've, I, no, I've said that's all I've seen him live. I've seen him at challenger tournaments. Um, he hits the ball very, very hard. The, mm. the closest thing you can probably say in terms of stylistically is Karatsev. Um, he's one of this generation of Russians that there are a lot of them now, actually, and it wasn't always the case. The Russians you used to, when you used to think about the Russians, they'd be solid, they'd make a lot of balls, um, they compete hard. And that kind of thing. Whereas now, there's this generation of them who just hit the ball phenomenally hard, and low percentage. Low percentage. Um, they just go after it, and they don't often. You know, it's one of those big myths actually uh, that that we have in tennis that you always think you know you go, oh, the Eastern Europeans they they're such fighters. It's not necessarily the case that, um, and you know, such as Safalin and. Uh, Karatsev, they're very much um, I think the journalist Rob Smythe once cottoned the phrase they're good time Charlies um, <laughs> they, they, when they're playing well, they're very very good and when they're not, they're, they're not Yeah yeah, He's, he's interesting because he, he, he won a junior Grand Slam as well in 2015, he won the Junior Australian Open and we always say that in the men's game especially that means a lot less but I do sometimes wonder if, you know, you see the late bloomers. Like, I often find that when someone makes a breakthrough like this, I go and look at their record and go, oh, he did win a junior slam, but it was a while ago. And, you know, so obviously, like, Liam Brody was a very highly rated junior and had that similar kind of, like, you know, had a few problems with his forehand and had a few other problems, like, just sorting himself out a bit and working out what he wanted to be. And then kind of, and all right, he's he's not top 50. He's, Made top 100, though, and that's an achievement in itself. So I do wonder if there's a bit of the late bloom sometimes with these guys who are very good when they're, you know, 17 and play a lot of juniors and, and go and win things. So we'll see how that, uh, yeah, how mean, that works it, out. It's one of the, the truisms of tennis, actually, that when people, you, you know, you always get tennis parents in particular. When, when it's, it's always coincidentally when their children are not very good as juniors. And they go, well, you, know, you don't have to be very good as a junior to be a senior. Uh, and it's like being a great junior does not make you uh, it does not guarantee you being a great senior but all of the great seniors all the great professionals should I say have all been great juniors right and this was always the one where there's still I know when it came about when Sinner was was breaking through actually on what we were just talking about that I had a conversation with George might even have been on this podcast or it might have been on one of the videos that I did for George uh, before we started doing the podcast where George said you know we had a discussion whether he could be world number one they're still, and Sinner was not a great junior. I think he was, I don't think he ever made the top 150 as a junior. Right. Um, but 
Um, and he played a lot of tournaments as a junior. It wasn't one of those where, you know, they just don't play a lot, like Alcaraz and Nadal and that kind of thing. And I, I think I said then that there's never been a world number one that hasn't been a great junior. A great, a, 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 a very good junior, sure. should we say. Like, you know, somebody who I'd say has made top 15 or ish in the world. Um, mm. So, you, you know, it, it's one of those things, but you do get, you know, people used to say this about Sanfras. I think, like, they used to go, oh, Sanfras was never a great junior, and look what he did. And it's like, you look looked at his ITF profile, and he was, like, ranked eight in the world. He was the eighth <laughs> best junior in the world. And on the whole planet, there were only seven 18 and under players better than him. Um, yeah. He just didn't win slams. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, Yannick Sinner's peak ranking as a junior was 133. So he did make yeah. top top 150, but only just. He never yeah. played the main draw of a high-level grade one uh, junior event, which is pretty um pretty remarkable, really. So so I, I think if I learn anything from that, and maybe there's nothing to learn from that, but if you do, it's that, you know, he's a scrapper when it comes to long-term improvement. He, he can get better. I mean, but also what I'd say about Safflin is that, you know, he's still not that old. What is he? Is he 25? 26. Yeah, so, you know, in the men's game, that's... And he's been around the top 100 a bit now, I think. Mm. You know, it's it's not um, that, you know, it's, it's not like he's 31 and breaking through. Sure. Uh, you know, it's... Sure. Yeah. I guess it's just, I mean, you know, the the great problem with tennis is that, like, the 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 lens has always been getting skewed by the big three, for example, big four, for example. And it's the same. Like, Alcaraz has kind of made us forget that you don't have to be a world beater at you know, nineteen. You you can yeah. take until you're twenty five to really to really make it work. Yeah, yeah. Um one of the other matches I wanted to point out from Shanghai this week is uh Evans versus Alcaraz, uh, which was today. Um Alcaraz won in straight sets, a couple of amazing points. Um that what is it about this matchup, Calvin, that it, it just always seems to produce really, really entertaining tennis, even if it's always pretty much going to end the same way it, it you know ever's only taken one set off him in four meetings but i've enjoyed every single one of them uh yeah i mean just two good tennis players two good tennis players to watch as well I think. Mm. two good tennis players to watch who don't play in the same way which is always always makes for great matches that mm. kind of thing um yeah and ever tends to be involved in a lot of really good matches just because he's different yeah, um, you know it's one of those. How do you practice to play against Evo? Who are you gonna Who are you gonna get? If you got him first round and you want to practice set against somebody similar, who are you gonna get? And there isn't anybody. Really. No. Um. So yeah, it was just it was a high level match. I watched most of it. Um. And Alcaraz said after, and he he was honest in it. I I think he wasn't blowing smoke up Evo's ass. He said it, it was one of the most difficult matches he's had this year, and you mm. can tell he just doesn't enjoy playing it. Um, yeah, he doesn't. You know, he, he gets through it because he's a warrior, but he just doesn't enjoy playing it. And I, I spoke with Evo a little bit after, just by text, and he said the difficulty with Alcaraz is that he just doesn't. He doesn't have a point. Doesn't take a point off. <laughs> he's just relentless all the time, and mm. you know that's that's true. You know, a lot of those younger guys, they, they you know, they're going to give you a game occasionally, or they're going to give you like a love thirty that you can get your teeth into. Whereas against Alcaraz, you just got to win every single point. Mm. Um, let, I, I feel like we've we've spent a lot of time because there are a lot of interesting matches to talk about talking about the the men's game. And I was going to ask George to to lead us into uh, 
Coco Goff Phil as our, our, our Coco Goff expert, but um, we've lost him again. So maybe forever, who knows? Uh, so please send your CVs to tenantunfiltered at gmail.com for the George Belshaw replacement. The only requirement is that you have a stable internet connection, which uh, Belshaw's fallen down on. So, um, But business as usual in the Coco Goff arc, you might argue, because her long winning streak of 16 matches has finally ended, and it was by a familiar foe, Iga Shontek, who'd be her 6 2 6 3. Um, of course, one of the big matches of the summer for Coco Goff was her finally ending that um, one-sided head-to-head and getting a win over Igishrontek, but that seems to have been uh, restored. Calvin, I suppose we were kidding ourselves if we thought that all of a sudden Coco Goff was just as good as Igishrontek in that matchup. It, there's obviously still a lot of work to do there. Is that going to be the thing that holds her back from, from being a dominant force if, if she can't beat Igishrontek on a regular basis? I think so, yeah. Um, and I don't think she will be on a regular basis. Um might get the odd win, but I don't think it's going to be a great rivalry. That mm. one just because of, you know, we're at that stage now, unfortunately, and, you know, you can make players at this level, at that, at that standard, they're not going to get. And this goes for everybody. It goes for Schwantek, Goff, any player you want at that level. They're not going to get 15 20% better at tennis. You know, from now until the end of their career, if they get 5% better, that's a phenomenal achievement. Hmm. Um, but... Does that apply to all the shots as well? Do you think you can't make a big improvement on if you've got one much weaker shot and maybe a, a room to improve? Is there a big change you can make there, or is that so rare it's almost unheard of? I think it varies, but I think I'm still inclined to say yeah, that's the case. Hmm. Again, I think if 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 as a if as a coach now, Coco Goff hired somebody and and they. And she said, I want you to... And they said, I will make your forehand 10% better. Then she should absolutely snap their hand off at that. Because mm. I think that's the best. That's the, the great... That's the most I think you can get at that level. Um, and to be fair, you make her forehand 10% better, it's quite a significant improvement. I don't mm. think it's enough to beat Iga Svante. Um the problem is what what are you going to do with that? You know what can you do for for a four? I know what the kind of things that I do. I talk about rhythm and momentum and and that kind of stuff. But you can't be changing grips and stuff and changing swings and that mm. kind of thing. And I think we often overegg it. What you can actually do. I know that there was like I know Petch used to talk about like that Raducanu had changed the forehand technique and this kind of thing, but. You know, I think there were a couple of tweaks, but I think it was somewhat exaggerating to say that that she changed her forearm. Hmm. You know, it's like, because that's all you can do. These players are playing. You don't get any close season. The only time that ever that they would have had a real mo- moment to do this kind of thing was during the pandemic when yeah. the first lockdown came. And there you had like about two months where there was no tournaments or anything. But hmm. even at the close season, you're going to go, you know, say the season ends. When's the last week of the WTA? Uh, uh, Billie Jean King Cup finals, which is another, you know what, end of November? End of Middle November. of November? Middle of November. Right. Say yeah. it's middle of November, right? Those girls have had a, a lot, you know, they're going to need some time off. So yeah. they're going to probably take 10 days, two weeks off. Hmm. You've then got four weeks before you're going to, you have to be playing a tournament in Australia. 
Yeah. You're making technical changes in four weeks. Like big ones. Yeah, like, yeah, not, not just tweaks. It's not going to happen. Um, so for that reason, and I think a lot of it is, is mental as well, but you can't show me any player. I'd, I'd challenge anybody to show me any player who's already got to the top 20 in the game or top 10 even who has improved technically a shot throughout their career and and not and not improved it sorry who's gone from that's a that's a real weakness to pretty good now i think well i i'm not a big enough expert to pick out but the one that everyone talks about is federer's backhand no no federer could always hit his backhand he just didn't hit it like Federer's back and you you go back and right go back and watch the 2005 US Open final against Agassi mm. when it, which I think was Federer I still think was Federer in his prime right and then to, I think it's five it's five, oh, four yeah, yeah, five, four or five, five five right and then go and tell me that Roger Federer like found a backhand in 2017 he didn't. He always had it. He just didn't hit it. So, and that's a tactical thing. That's not a technical mm. thing. You can get tactically better. You know, as I said last week that Agassi did that when he started working with Brad Gilbert. Mm. You can say, you know, he changed hugely tactical, massive tactical change, seismic change to what Agassi was doing strategy-wise and that kind of thing. And it was seismic as well when Federer started hitting his backhand again. Mm. But he had a great. He didn't. He didn't do anything different on his backhand. He always had it. He just wasn't hitting it. He he was thinking, and it wasn't even a confidence thing. He was for years. He was thinking the way for me to win tennis matches. I'm just going to slice people off court, and I'll occasionally hit it. No, mm. not occasionally. He was he was still hitting it a fair bit. He went to hitting it, especially against Nadal. Yeah, I don't think against anyone else he really made a whole lot of change. He's still basically doing what he always was. But what he started doing against Nadal, and I know this because I know my I know somebody a close friend of mine knows Lubacic, and mm. they basically when when he played him in the when Lubacic started working with him, the rule that they made was no chip returns and every chance you get on a backhand, every time you can on a backhand, you hit it. Hmm. And it was that simple. There was no, um, there was no change in that from what... I see. Um, okay. But no, there was no... What I'm saying is is, is for a player that, that has had a weakness in a shot, and you look at it now, I can, you know, you can go through, you know, like Andy Murray has had a weakness on his second serve for his whole career. It's never really got any better. Hmm. You know, mm. like Zverev doesn't volley any better now than what he ever has. His forehand's no better than what he has. You know, it's, yeah. I think his second serve is, but I think that's because he's come to. I don't think it's a technical change. I think he's just in a better space mentally than what he was. I think for a while he was just thinking, "I'm going to double fault here. I'm going to double fault." But there's no change in his serve than what it was. So you don't find. I'm still yet to see uh, the two things. I'm still yet to see. I say this all the time. I'm, I don't know a sports psychologist who you can categorically say has ever improved the player in, in any sport, really. I'd, I'd argue, and I know some people will come to me with. I actually had a conversation with Ronnie O'Sullivan about it once, um, and he claimed that Steve Peters had transformed his career. And then I reminded Ronnie that he'd already won six world championships before that. Um, <laughs> so, you, you, you know. Um, but, you know, players and athletes often think that that's the case, but I don't think sports psychologists really ever have any impact in my experience. Um, and I don't know a player who who already at a very high level has, has changed a shot 
and I'd, I'm saying change it. I don't mean tweak the shot. Let's change the shot technically, and it's been better. Mm. Interesting. Um, well, we, we've disappeared off topic, but maybe um, we should talk a bit more about coaching because there's been a, well, not a significant coaching change, and, and maybe it's less about coaching and more about um, the world according to Stefan Sitsipas, however mental that might be. But uh, the news this week is that Stefan Sitsipas has got his dad back in his box. Um, he had a big go at everyone for making things up about him getting rid of his dad. I went back and read the quotes. He, he said he was giving his dad some time off and that he was going to work with someone different for a while. Um, it wasn't really clear, but it was pretty obvious what was going on. Uh, he obviously went and worked with Mark Philippoussis, um, and he now isn't anymore. He said, uh, this is Stefan Sitspas on, on what had happened. He said it was a little bit off tune in many ways, not having the presence of my dad there sort of felt like I was losing part of my identity as a player I wasn't able to adjust to the new formal ways or teaching or methods that were applied by Mark who I admire and like watching on TV uh, when I was younger um, damned with faint praise there I think Calvin but uh, how many times have players rung you up six months after sacking you and said please can you come back <laughs> it rarely happens but I'm not any player's <laughs> dad so I mean, I find the whole thing was just that whole thing was just absolutely bizarre. Like, uh, and still is, right? As, as we alluded to before, that he's basically said he doesn't want his dad around, which I think was a smart decision. Uh, yeah. He wants, but then if you if you were to go to people who know tennis, we've had this discussion as well before about who knows what a good tennis coach is. I don't think many tennis players know what a good tennis coach is, but I think you know there are people who do. If you were to go right. If Setsen Sitsipas was to go to somebody, for example, who, who let's say there is a person who definitely knows what a good coach is, whoever that may be, person X, they definitely know who the best tennis coaches are. And Stefano Sitsipas was to go to that person and say, I need a tennis coach. Who, who, do you, who would you advise? How many people do you think he'd have gone through before he got to Mark Philippoussis? Hmm. <laughs> And I I think it's I think we'd be talking about number of hours of listing people on, and days of listing people that you would get to before going the person you need is Mark Philippus. Mark Philippus has got he ended up coaching Stefano Sitsipas because I think he talks I think he talks himself up quite well. Uh he used to be a good player and he speaks Greek. Yeah. And that they shouldn't be the criteria for coaching one of the top ten tennis players in the world. Hmm. And he should have looked at that. He should have. He could even have looked at it for the six months prior to that and gone, "What? How good a work? How good a job has he done with Maria Sakari?" <laughs> and that there, your answer would have lied there. But then he's gone right. I don't mind saying I don't think Matt Filipus is a very good coach at all. Um, and I've seen him coaching. I've been on the court next to him when he's coaching. I don't think he's very good at all. Um, but you've then gone right. Well, I'm going to try this one person who no one else who's not Greek thinks is very good at coaching, but that didn't work. So then I can only go. The only option for me now is to go back to the only person who's ever coached me before, who I split up with six months ago because I didn't think it was working. Mm. Um, w without naming names, like have you were or come across players before who, because there's a lot of them who have their parents as coaches. Is it more difficult to sort of wean them off that parental um, dominion, if you like? It, it, does it create some, maybe not scar tissue, but 
some like problems or, or not necessarily even problems, but bonds that you can never really break or, or is it just, is it too simple to, to simplify? There's like two types really. There's the, there's the parents who are actually tennis coaches, um, you know, who are tennis coaches before. And I don't know loads of them. I know most, most parents, most tennis coaches who I know who are friends of mine who have kids. They won't coach them because they say that it's it's a bit. They don't want to get involved in that. Yeah. And, but then, but then again, I don't know if any of them. I'm trying to think if any of my friends have got quite kids who are very good at tennis. Maybe not. <laughs> um, um, but I know they have play. play, play. I know that. Um, I know that they play. But I, if if I had kids, I'd probably coach them because mm. I'm I'm very specific in wanting to know what um what I'd want from a player who I was who I'd have vested interest in. Yeah. And I know that there aren't many very good tennis coaches around. Um and I'd trust myself to not be an idiot about it. Which... Do you think do you think you would also have the because, you know, when it comes to your own kids there's some things you can't control. Do you think you would also have the ability to say, actually I need to be your dad right now and not your tennis coach and maybe even step back and bring someone else in? Yeah, but I've seen people who can do that. I mean I've, I've, I've I, no, I tell you a mate of mine, one of my best mates, who was a phenomenal tennis player, um, a guy called Gary Henderson. Um, who's a brilliant he ended up he, he got to what he got to the top two hundred in the world ish. But he only played tennis for nine months. Um, right. And he played Wimbledon, lost to Guy Forge at Wimbledon. So his son plays tennis now. And his son is okay. He's quite good. And and the thing with Gary was that he had a, a brilliant tennis mind. He was he's very athletic as well. But he had a brilliant tennis mind. And I'd not seen his lad play until I went to with Henry and Jules to Delray, um, where he lives. He lives in America now. He lives in West Palm Beach. Right. Um, and he asked me to do a couple of sessions with his lad. And then he asked me to go to a tournament with them. And I watched, and I've always found Garrett, Gary's one of my best mates, and I've always loved talking tennis with him because it's, he's just an engaging talker about the game, about how he used to play, and some of the things that he that I still incorporate now with the mentality of things. I'll give an example because some of the listeners might 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 sort of uh, enjoy this kind of thing that Gary sort of once told me. I remember to a couple of things he said that whatever your best serve is in a match use the opposite of that early in a match because first impressions stick and mm. players will think that's what you're going to go. So if you've got a great wide serve on the juice, stick a couple down the tee early um, yeah. and then it gives you that. And then he said things to me like, if, you've, if you're over 15.30 as a returner, then just, just go for it, swing for it because you're, even if you lose it, you're in exactly the same position as you were. You, you still need two points to win the game. Um, that's such need- that's such yeah. an interesting way of yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. It's so different. Um, yeah, so you still you still need to, you you only need you still need two points to win the game even if you lose this point. And that mm. the only difference is they only need to, but that doesn't actually affect you. So anyway, Gary's a great thinker and, and I watched his lad play. Uh and, and we went to watch a match and I was watching it and then and Gary was talking the whole time and I was said to Gaz, I was like, Gaz, you've lost your mind here. Like the things <laughs> what you're saying. And not how you would talk about tennis yeah. in general. Like these, this are just they're just not like you know you're you're coming up with with stuff because it's your lad who's playing where you've like you've lost all of your tennis intellect and everything just because the emotion of this has got to you. And and he admitted it. He acknowledged it that he that he had. And hopefully he's got better at it. But um, 
yeah, so I think it, it that often happens. Um, I mean, you know, I would, for example, if one of my mates' kids wanted to play tennis and they turned out to be very good, I'd coach them. But that's, mm. I know that's not it's not the same as having a dad, but I also know, you know, I've known these kids since since they were born. Yeah. So, you, you know, but again, I'm a tennis coach, though. I'm intrigued to know how it's going to go with um, Ben Shelton and his dad. Because um, Brian Shelton has been a successful college coach. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's a good college coach. Is a bit different from normal coaching, especially head coach. Yeah, so yeah. I know a lot of people say who say the head coach is basically a recruiter. Yeah, they um, don't really. It's the assistant coaches yeah. who do lots of but, the like actual. But, yeah. But I imagine he he knows enough. He played. He played to a high level as well, Brian. So I imagine he knows enough to think right. These are the things what Ben needs. Um, mm. The thing, and and I, from, I mean, Luke, I, I did not have a good experience at college with Brian Shelton in the, for for various reasons, um, he was kind of shattered financially, with that situation. So, mm. I, I, but from what I've seen and know of Brian, I think he seems quite um, level-headed. Um, yeah. So I'm in, I'm just intrigued. I don't have an opinion on it. I'm intrigued to see how it goes. Yeah, um, it started yeah. well. Let's be honest. Yeah, and, and well. you know Ben Shelton. People have talked about him a lot this summer, and um, it's become a sort of cause celebre in uh, tennis Twitter to slag off Ben Shelton. But anyway, um, when I've met him, he seems like a a guy who gets excited on the court, but off the court is pretty level headed. And the one thing he said to me about his dad was, he knows when to be my coach. He knows when to be my dad. And I think yeah. that's probably going to be the biggest thing, you know. Ben Shelton's also a real coming back into kid. it later as well. You know, it's mm. like Ben's now what is he? Twenty one. Twenty one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's different when you know, whereas Sixty Pass has been coached by his dad forever. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. you know, it's different when you come in at twenty one, and you know, and I think, um, I mean, I just you know, I saw the clip today. I, I the Ben's like, I, I think it's natural. I do that. He's either a phenomenal worker. Uh, how you know how we always see something to do you see the video today of him when it was raining and he he, he asked in the doubles match and he he's the ball kid was holding the umbrella for him getting wet through and he told her just to come and sit on the bench with him and he'd hold the <laughs> umbrella up so she wouldn't get wet <laughs> and and she did it and it just seemed so natural i thought this this kid's a star like, yeah you know it's that kind of stuff that especially in this age of clipping and social media and instagram where you think like you know if he gets his tennis in good shape it's like you know you're basically looking at personality-wise, I'd say you're basically looking at Magic Johnson. <laughs> in the, he just always see. Hopefully, not full personality-wise, or might struggle Quite. on the relationship front. But he just always seems in a, you know, he's always got a smile on his face, always energetic. But that, you know, yeah, that's not what we're talking about. But yeah, um, on the coaching thing, I, I, I just don't see this working out great for City Pass. So yeah. I don't see, I don't see. Like, do we see him? What's he going to do now? Is he going to sack his dad again? If it's not working, what do you do now? If it's like, say, say when it, we get to French Open next year and he's no better, what's he yeah. going to do then? You know, the big thing for me is like, how many people do you think are picking up the phone to Apostle Sisypas and saying, do you fancy coming and working for me instead? Like, do you well, think anyone why? is why? looking at him and saying, that's the coach I want? And, uh, 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 you know, it, it sounds silly, but. Would he have that job if he wasn't his, his dad? He absolutely wouldn't. 
Now, that doesn't mean he can't do it. And, you know, I think probably if you look at Coco Goff, she's always had her dad around, but she's often had other people, you know, whether it's Lugano or, heaven forbid, Patrick Muratoglu, but, you know, whatever. Um, he's not always been the only guy in her corner, which I think is really valuable. Um, yeah. And and I also think to, if you're a top 10 tennis player and you've only got one coach, what are you doing? Like, I, I know that sounds really reductive, but, like, you've got the ability to have more brains in there. Uh, I, I know, Calvin, you'll probably disagree with me and you're probably in a better position to do so, but I always think, like, what, you've got one guy doing all of it. Like, you've got one guy booking all your practice courts, like, sorting out all your stringing, doing your laundry, also doing your scouting reports, doing all your tactical, this, that, and the other. It seems like a lot for one person. I mean, that's one of the things. I don't think coaches should do that. Players should do that. Laundry. Um, <laughs> you know, you usually got someone else who books, you know, hotel It's not hard to book hotel rooms anyway. Like, the tournaments now, they're mostly have officials. And yeah, like, yeah. If you're not staying in the official, you've probably got an agent who does it. Yeah. But, I'd certainly never be taking any players' laundry for them, you know. And it's like the the guys who I coach, they, you know, why, why why do you need you look? I'm not if 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 one of the guys, Luke or Henry, if, you know, they'll go like say they're you know we're running late or something, or I'm doing nothing. They go, Cal, you drop my, my drop my rackets off the stringer. Or pick yeah. it up. I'll always do it, but I don't think any coach should be you know you're not a skivvy. You've yeah. got to be you know, and, and players have to, players have to be down to earth to a certain degree. But again, I'll, I'll flip the question around on that though, James. With, like, I entirely agree how many people are picking up the phone to Apostle, but how many people has Stefanos gone through to thought, you know, who's he looked at and thought, you know, has he, has he looked at like, you know, has he gone, I wonder how serious, you know, I wonder if I could tempt Brad Gilbert away from, um, from Coco Goff or, mm. I don't know, you know, is, is, you know, I know that, for example, I know he's going back to Osaka, but, you know, he's been set around. Yeah, or, or that or kind Darren of stuff. Cahill, or yeah, you know. or or any, or even don't go for one of the big names. You know, go go and speak to people lower down. Speak to someone who works at the ITF in the coach education department and that kind of thing, because they know who the coaches are. They know who the good coaches are because they they've worked with them at a lower level. Mm. You know, and go. You know, I could do with a coach, or even if you want to go look. And you're my dad, right? You know, my dad's he's my dad. He's a bit of a pain in the ass, and <laughs> got to keep it up. But like. Who's around? Like you know, who who do you know? You think I tell you what, he knows how to coach, and he'll yeah. get he'll get a player out of you. Um, mm. And that's like you know, I give credit to like you know, Luke's a bit different. I'll go just on my my sort of storylines that Luke's a bit different in that I coached Luke from when when he was a lot younger, um, and I've known him since he was twelve, and then um, he used to get coached by my friend who I just mentioned, Gary. Actually, used to coach him, and mm. then. Gary left the States, then I started working with Luke, then Luke went to uni and then blah blah blah. So I've known Luke for a while. But Henry, who I, I knew Henry, but I know Henry when he at the start of last year, um, he rang Mark Hilton at the LTA and said, I'd like to I'd like to get a tennis coach. Um mm. he'd been travelling without a coach, he's like, I'd like a coach. Who do you think? And Hilt said, You want to get Calvary? Um and that's that's how that relationship started. Mm. But I don't know how many players do that though. Yeah. How many players? Well, that, I mean, that was the and... thing when when Eisenbud did that interview on the tennis podcast, and you know he, he look p- people can love or hate Max Eisenbud. That plenty do both. I mean, plenty hate him. I don't know how many people love him, but he he doesn't care. Um, but you know he was talking about how Lena would sort of come to him and say, "I need a new coach," and he he'd give her a list of two or one, and 
you know, like Max Eisenberg is one of the great deal makers of the 21st century. He's made an incredible amount of money. Like how much he knows about a tennis coach, I, I think, as we said at the time, I really don't know. And I, I don't know. I just I feel like there isn't there are some people out there who do think like this. But in tennis, surely you want to cast your net as widely as possible. You want to get as many different bits of information in and then kind of you know, distill that down, narrow it down, and then go, okay, here's the voice. But, uh, and, you know, I, I, that's why in some ways I admire the Radicanu method of getting lots of coaches in, but I think it's maybe a little bit too frenetic. But go, surely you want to canvas opinion. I'll say, again, I I still think the best tennis coach in the world is Louis Caillé. And that mm. doesn't just mean as a doubles coach. I mean, as a tennis coach, he just happens to be very good at doubles as well. But <laughs> yeah. I was talking to a player a few weeks ago, and I don't want to name the player um, who knew Louis, and and they go, oh yeah, he's a good doubles coach. And I said, no, he's he's a good coach. He's a good... I don't know if like at Louis's age, and you know, Louis's quite abrasive. I don't know if he could go on tour, even when when he was younger. I don't know if he could go on tour full time with a player. Mm. Um, but I'd said, no, he's a, he's a good coach. Like, no, he's a shit. He's a shit singles coach. And I thought like that. You know, I've had this opinion for a while, but again, this just. If you put it more into the bank in the theory that tennis players don't know what good coaches are. Yeah, they they know what what they what they most tennis players want is they want somebody who who they get on with. Yeah, who who is their idea who puts together their idea of what they think a coach should be, mm. and that is usually practice is quite enjoyable, and they'll tell me stuff, and that's not how it works. Like you, you know, it's 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 not like that. Um, Whereas, you know, if if you're in a state where you're going, I know, for example, that this player who I'm talking about would be, if they'd have worked with Louis for three months, they would be 30 places higher in the rankings now. If they'd have worked with him a few years ago full time, they'd be 50, play, 50 or 60 places higher in the rankings. Hmm. So that player thinks that he's not only not going, no, I don't get on with him, doesn't think he's a good coach. Well, you'd never get a team of footballers to hire their next manager, would you? Like, and it's always straight. I've always said that though, as a, as a tennis coach, James. It's a strange one that is that you like. Even for me, like who you don't, you're work, you're getting paid by the player, but also you have to be their boss as well. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's not a very it's strange not dynamic. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty weird, but I, and I guess all individual sports are like that, like boxing or golf. Like it's the same thing to a to to, to a larger or great or lesser extent. And it's often why it can work. It's a bit easier. I've worked with players before that have agents as well, and we've had conversations like and, and with with the agents as well. Where if the player, for example, isn't, I'll, I'll give us a, a broad example. If they're, for example, they're just not putting an they're not putting enough effort in, and I've told them you need to train harder, and they go like you know, and they're still not. I've spoke with agents and one of the agents who was very good said to me, look, I'm going to have the conversation with him because you need to maintain a relationship. With him. Yeah. Like you need to go on court with him every day and it doesn't make any sense for you to be having a row with him about this thing mm. um, and then go on court with him because then he was like, but if I have a row with him, it doesn't make any difference. I don't have to see him for another six weeks. Mm. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff, Calvin, without blowing smoke up your ass. Um, not that you need near it. But um, I think that's probably all we've got time for. Sorry to have lost George halfway through. Um, lost at sea, RIP. Uh, but we'll live. 
the show will go on as always. Um, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you uh, get your podcasts, if that's something you can do. Uh, if not, uh, sign up to the Substack, tennisunfiltered.substack.com. Find us on Twitter at Unfiltered Tennis. But most importantly, please come back next week. Podcast Network.